Welcome back to Think Tech. Uh, this is Life in the Law with Avi Stoifer, formerly the dean of the William S. Richardson School of Law. We're going to talk about Supreme Court and it, its reform, which is badly in need right after this. What's wrong with SCOTUS that cannot be ignored, Avi? It, There's you a lot I've wrong talked with... about this. There is a great deal wrong with this Supreme Court. Uh, one of the important things to keep in mind, and it's something that we've talked about, Jay, in the past, is that we tend to forget that the Supreme Court has been really bad over much of our history. So this is nothing new. But this one stands out, uh, and it stands out for a couple of reasons. One is that they're just not playing by the rules, uh, by the norms. They're not following the usual customs. And that's true in terms of a lot of the inside baseball that goes on, the kind of internal rules about jurisdiction and standing and which cases they take and what's an emergency and what's a doctrine and all sorts of important things like that. But it's also true in terms of the bottom line and the willingness to ignore precedent, uh, the willingness to ignore the important practical effects of their decisions and their kind of enthusiasm for remaking the law, uh, which is not uh, making it easy to teach constitutional law, which I'm still doing. Uh, and, uh, you know, you try to keep a straight face when you talk about the Supreme Court and the need to respect it or at least respect the law, and they're making it more and more difficult each term. And it is not only the abortion decision or the gun rights decision, there are a whole bunch of other decisions which have not been in the headlines, but are really troublesome. You know, we went to law school. Some of us went on to teach constitutional law. It was always, a, you know, kind of a qualitative experience because you never knew exactly. And, and, you, and you wound up respecting them, holding them in high esteem, but also wondering, wondering why they did the things they did. But now you wonder why they do all of their cases. I mean, it's like you no confidence anymore, not even a scintilla, may I use that term, of confidence, that they do the right thing in a, in a given case. This is very troublesome because, you know, as we've seen in Eastern Europe, um, as we've seen in Israel right now, uh, that if you attack the court system, you attack a fundamental part of government and democracy. If they can't perform properly, that is um, that is tearing out one of the underpinnings of at least conceptually our democracy. Um, so what effect does this have on the law in general when you have a Supreme Court that's unpredictable, unreliable, and um, um, you know unprincipled? Well, unprincipled, I think, is a good way to sum it up. Uh, they really are unprincipled. Um, when you say behave properly, that's a difficult and interesting and important issue. And that's why we teach constitutional law. Uh, but the public has tremendous respect for the court, perhaps more than it deserves, given history. Uh, it is the court that gave us Dred Scott, and it's the court that had separate but equal, and it's done many other things in the realm of voting. It kind of encouraged Jim Crow. Uh, and certainly made it legitimate to uh, use Jim Crow in all sorts of ways. Uh, but there are things to be said about taking into account more than allegedly taking into account only the text, for example. And I think one of the moves, and there are many, uh, that this court is making is to say, oh, this is a doctrine. And sometimes it's a doctrine that's just been made up uh, recently. But they say, oh, this is a doctrine. So we're just construing a doctrine. And that allows people who claim to be bound by the text to not pay any attention to the text because they're just judges construing a doctrine that they just made up. 
And they've been doing that in some very major ways. Now, that's not a legitimate move. Um, and I don't think uh, that the public has caught on to how much they're manipulating. And that is different from properly judging. You know, you wonder about the, you know, the causes uh, of all these bad decisions. You know, uh, uh, over the past, you know, I would have assumed that they, they just went off the rails, that they were, you know, forgive the expression, they were smoking something. Uh, they were they were really not, <laughs> even when they didn't have anything to smoke. Uh, they were drinking. They were drinking, drinking something. Drinking some, yeah. Going, going back to John Marshall. He said, apparently, somewhere in our jurisdiction, it must be after five o'clock. So let's have a drink. <laughs> so, you know, uh, not that you can forgive them for these bad decisions, but we should understand, you know, what kinds of things led to the bad decision. Was it politics? Was it pressure? Um, you know, was it something insidious uh, or were they just being stupid? Um, and, and, I, and I, I, I don't use that term often with judges, but, you know, I'll use it now. Uh, there seems to be a logical possibility. And now that Clarence Thomas and, and that fund that, um, you know, that potential litigants can put poor money into that supports their educational programs with millions of dollars, you know, that's that's corruption, man. Um, and, and you wonder, you know, whether corruption was one of those elements that affected these bad decisions over all these years. What are the factors that made for bad decisions? Well, there are many factors, uh, and I think one of them is the legitimacy of how they got on the court, which has never been a pretty picture. It's often been, you know, are you friendly with a key senator? Uh, but the way this court got constituted in recent years is pretty appalling uh, when you think about uh, where Garland should have been rather than being the head of the Justice Department and the inconsistency of what uh, the Republican leadership did in the Senate. Uh, close to an election, well, that doesn't really matter if we want to appoint uh, Justice Coney Barrett. So within just a few years, that doesn't help legitimacy of the court. But I think one of the things uh, that is important is to see how this is of a piece with a fairly recent series of decisions. It isn't just last term or the term before. And one of them that stands out is Bush versus score. Because what, as you said, Jay, you, you look into how cases get there and that's one where they manipulated to a fairly well to get that case and to interfere with that case as it was coming up. And Justice Scalia was the main actor in all that. Uh, and then they decided a presidential election. And very differently from how the court and what politics is giving us now, uh, Gore was gracious in conceding when he certainly didn't have to. There was a lot of reason to think that Gore had actually won Florida. Uh, and the recount should have proceeded. Uh, but the court said, oh, no, we're going to you know, manipulate this, the calendar ourselves, and then we're going to take the case, and then we're going to decide it. And they decided and basically said, this case is only, this decision is only for this day. Well, it doesn't work that way, particularly when you're choosing a president. Uh, so some of us teaching constitutional law back then said, well, how can I, we do this uh, and, and sort of try to get the students to respect the court? Well, it turned out that the American public just said, oh, we respect the court, right? I mean, whatever they do. And I think that's one of the dangers now, uh, because we have so little in the way of wisdom or policy uh, that makes sense coming out of the other branches of the Congress and the presidency because of gridlock of, of various sorts, 
uh, people are looking to the court more and more. And that what they're seeing with this court is very concerning. Very. So let's focus on one guy who is my unfavorite person, and that's Clarence Thomas. Um, you know, for most of his career on the court, well, let's let's begin at the beginning. I mean, very, very strange confirmation. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, although I like him in other ways, uh, was uh, a great advocate for Clarence Thomas and helped turn it in Clarence Thomas's favor when they had all those contentious hearings. Um, and then Clarence uh, sat on the, uh, uh, you, don't, you don't mind if I call him Clarence, uh, he sat on the court for decades and decades and said nothing, asked no questions, was completely undistinguished. Am I right? And and now all of a sudden he emerges kind of like a, uh, the butterfly to the moth. Uh, he emerges as a, as a right-wing conservative, you know, driving these crazy cases and looking very corrupt. What happened there? Well, um, so going back to the confirmation hearing, I think uh, many people, I would say most people, believed Anita Hill, and they should have. And it wasn't so much that Biden advocated for him. It is that Biden, who was running the hearing, refused to take some more witnesses who were going to confirm her story. And they were ready to testify. And because he believed, uh, I guess, that it was in the national interest uh, to be bipartisan and not to make a show of it, uh, again, sort of like Al Gore, graciously for the Republican side, uh, Biden said, oh, no, we're, you know, we've heard enough and let's go to a vote. Um, so I think that's important to remember, um, but doesn't explain the Clarence Thomas dilemma or paradox that you described. He was and I think is a very angry guy. And he was particularly angry about affirmative action. And he believed that people thought that his career, starting at least in law school and maybe before, had been furthered by affirmative action, which embittered him somehow. Uh, and it embittered him about higher education and maybe about education in general. And it certainly embittered him about affirmative action. And we're going to hear more about that later this term, probably, when the Supreme Court decides two cases, one private out of Harvard and the other public out of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what, if anything, he says, whether he's writing the majority opinion or concurring, but it's pretty clear, I think, that they're going to strike down affirmative action as we know it, and there are going to be very important ramifications. Um, he partly, I think, was quiet because Scalia was so loud. Um, so one part of the explanation is just a personality or a collegiality aspect, uh, which is he let Scalia take the lead. He certainly voted with him most of the time. Uh, but he didn't feel the need. He's now more senior, uh, and a lot depends on uh, who's assigning the case, the cases. And now, um, usually, it is the senior justice, it's the chief justice, if the chief justice is on the majority side. Uh, they're giving Clarence Thomas much more play. But it's interesting that he has often written opinions where he goes out on his own. That can be a good thing. Uh, you know, we have a tradition of great dissenters, but now, of course, he's in the majority. Even so, uh, when Alito, and I thought I thought maybe you were going to go to Justice Alito as the one you wanted to pick on. I was going to ask you but, whether he was your unfavorite. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Alito, when he wrote Dobbs, the abortion decision, uh, tried to say, again, oh, we're not really reaching the other issues that we seem to be casting a very large shadow over. Uh, we're just deciding this case. 
and Thomas wrote separately and said, oh, no, we, we got to go after those. We got to go after privacy in the realm of the bedroom and so on. So he's concurring separately, not always as far to the right, if you want to do it in a right left uh, spectrum as the rest uh rest of the court alito's pretty far to the right and here's thomas going even further and i think actually alito and thomas and their colleagues helped the democrats and the midterm elections because it's pretty shocking what they did and what they did was to throw out a very important decision and to say oh we're going to settle this issue well that's of course absurd what they've done is made abortion much more uh, controversial much more in play in state after state and they've upset federalism, which they claim to believe in, uh, in lots of ways. And the gun decision, within 24 hours, those two decisions go differently as to whether we respect rights or leave it to the states and let them decide what the rights are. You can't really have it both ways and claim federalism, but they like to do that. They like to do it. And, you know, you speak of it as kind of an ideological issue, but it seems to me, going back to my word, which I, I, I feel troubled saying this word, but I will, is it ideology or is it stupidity? Well, I don't think it's, it's not stupidity. I think these are actually pretty bright people. So I think if it's either or, and I know, Jay, you like either or, uh, it is more ideology. I think that's clear. Um, and it's an ideology uh, which I don't think is entirely cynical, uh, but there's some cynicism in this. I think it is we can get away with this. The American public won't catch on. There is so much respect for the court that even after Bush versus Gore, that the public basically embraced the court. So we can do this and we will settle this. Now, do they really think they can settle it once and for all, as the Dobbs decision tried to do in the realm of abortion? They're not experienced in the world, uh, this majority, I would say. Um, so, you know, how and, right and or wrong ignorance. are they about it's the ignorance. consequences? Pardon me? It's ignorance. Well, that's different from stupidity, but they are they are not as pragmatic as they like to think, I guess. But they would say, oh, we're not supposed to be pragmatic. We're not supposed to worry about the consequences. I think that's wrong. Mm -hmm. I think, in fact, you do start with the text. I don't disagree with them about that. But famously, it was said that the text has a vote, but it doesn't have a veto. The text doesn't decide the issue. And you should worry about the consequences, as the court has often not done in Plessy versus Ferguson or Dred Scott or something like that. Now, this is an unusual court in that, with the exception of our newest justice, Justice Jackson, they haven't been around very much in the so-called real world. They've been in, in judicial chambers and in executive offices, that is uh, executive in the sense of the executive branch, uh, much more than in the past. In the past, we had senators and we even once in a while had a law professor uh, on the court and we had people who had been judges but in practice before that this is a very um what shall we say um it's not so much that they're elite although that is true uh, but it's a sort of out of touch with the day-to-day -day, i think in in their um echo chamber which it is sort of in the federal society and, and things like that so they, re, they reinforce each other, they pat each other on the back, not just the justices, but the people who support them and, and help get them there. Uh, and that's dangerous, I think. That is pro a problem. Now, just our newest Justice Jackson, there was another Justice Jackson, has done a lot of things before. She's eminently qualified. And it's a shocking thing that it was a close vote and that P 
people who know better, I would think, say, oh, how could you have defended this person when you're a public defender? Well, that's what you're supposed to have in the criminal law. You're supposed to have two sides and you defend everyone. You don't just say, oh, that's a bad person. That's what the criminal process is about. And she did her job, which is really the Lord's work, being a public defender. And she got almost defeated, not just for that reason, also because she's black and a woman, but she, that's what they used against her. It's incredible that the Republican side in that vote with a few people who left the, the party line, uh, the Republican side said she wasn't qualified. Uh, it's just unthinkable. The Republican side was racist. It was the racist. The Senate was racist. The whole process was racist. You're right. But hey, I'm making a, a narrower point about law, I think. So you're right. It was because it was race and on gender grounds as well. But she couldn't be more qualified. And yet, so that's, I think, why you're right to say it's racist, because you can't explain it otherwise. What else could it be? Yeah. So let's let's go to the question of corruption. You know, who would have thunk, you know, 20 years ago or when you and I went to school that the Supreme Court would be in the middle of corruption? I mean, to have that multi-million dollar fund coming from uh, corporate America, this is obviously capitalist corruption. I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to sound like an anti-capitalist, but it is capitalist corruption, okay? And, and then you have Ginny Thomas, who was clearly corrupt, and, and he should have recused himself or jumped off the court completely, or something should have happened to discipline him, but nothing and he gets away with it. They get away with it. I am so disappointed in Roberts for not doing jack about this. Um, doesn't it smell like corruption? How can you have trust and confidence in a court that's surrounded with these issues? Well, um, corruption is a difficult thing to define, but I think there is much in what you say, Jay. And the Chief Justice, we recently learned, also has some issues with spousal um uh, involvement through her employment uh, and through her interests. So yes. the problem, and I think the reason we're having this conversation right now, the timing of this conversation, though I always welcome a chance to talk uh, with you, Jay, on and off camera, uh, is that uh, we, a friend of mine and I wrote a letter uh, about the court making some of the points I've just been making and saying something has to be done about this. And the most obvious, in some ways the easiest, is an ethical code. They have no ethics code. All the other judges on the federal bench and the state courts have ethics that they have to worry about. And we are not saying that's a solution, but it's a step in the right direction. And I guess one should say, and there was, uh, our, our letter was published uh, in, in the insight section of, of the Sunday Star Advertiser, the week before last, I think it was, we got over 250 law professors to join us in signing that letter and saying something has to be done. Right alongside it was a, a column by Noah Feldman, very smart guy um, and very knowledgeable as well as smart. And he says, well, an ethics code in, the, in that column, he says an ethics code really wouldn't work because who would enforce it? The court would enforce it. Well, then we're in a circular problem. Um, I think he's right up to a point. And that is, a lot of ethics codes are not very much enforced, but it's important that they're there. And we don't know how many people don't do something because they know it might violate the code. It might be close to the edge or it might be over the edge. And so even if it's largely hortatory, it's really, we hope it works, uh, it's important. 
And the court has nothing like that. And some of what you pointed to and some other ways in which one can argue corruption of one sort or another, minor and major, uh, go unchecked and actually even unidentified. You had a bunch of suggestions, uh, and you've discussed this before uh, in that article, in, in, the, in that piece in the Star Advertiser, which is really good for the Star Advertiser that has a, a piece like yours, you know, sort of national scope, very important. Um, so uh, can, can you summarize the, the ways in which we could achieve reform and clean this up? Well, one thing I want to put in a plug, one of the people who signed our letter is Nancy Gertner. Nancy Gertner was on the commission that uh, President Biden appointed to look into what ought to be done or what might be done about the court. But his charge to them was don't make any specific proposals. But if people want to look at a very well, carefully written uh, description of some of the options, that's a good place to go. Uh, but they didn't violate their charge, uh, so they didn't make any recommendations. Among the things that are being talked about, and that may well make sense, but I don't think are about to happen. People shouldn't get uh, the idea that, uh, oh, the Congress is about to act on any of these. Uh, but these are really, for the most part, up to Congress. They don't require constitutional amendment. Constitutional amendments, of course, a whole different area. Um, so often the court did not have nine justices. The number of justices changed over time. Now, it's been set for our lifetimes and for a long time, but it was manipulated from time to time. And it does nowhere in the Constitution does it say nine or any other number. So that's one thing. Now, you would probably have to grandfather, as it were, uh, the current justices. You can't knock them off. That Constitution is pretty clear. The text is pretty clear about that. So, but you could add to the number looking forward. You could do that in terms of court packing, as it is called. And there's a recent book, a uh, very good book, uh, uh, that says, you know, FDR, then the famous court packing scene and proposal that didn't work, even though he was a very popular president, particularly at the time, right after the 1936 election. Uh, Professor Kalman has this book saying, well, actually, it came close. It isn't quite the story we all know. And maybe it wasn't so unwise because the court soon thereafter uh, altered striking down all the New Deal legislation. Uh, the plug is that Nancy Gertner is going to be here uh, June 16th for our oh, Access terrific. to Justice Conference. And so that's free, open to the public, and a free lunch, actually. Uh, so that's how something. Can I, how can I find out more about that? Well, you can contact me, Jay, but this, this, will be, this, will be, this will be advertised as we get closer to June 16th. But this is the Access to Justice Commission. And you go to the website, and of course, it's there already. And the Access to Justice Commission does a great deal, not for its annual conference alone, but day to day in this state. So uh, that's an important thing and an important plug for me to make. Uh, so you can alter the number. You can appoint some new justices. Um, if you alter the number, you can have term limits. And Justice Breyer, as he was getting pressure about maybe you should not make the mistake that many people think Justice Ginsburg made and stay on too long, you should uh, step down from the court, you should retire while there's a president whose appointment you might like better. Uh, and he said, you know, if there were a term limit, that would make my life much easier. They wouldn't be pestering me this way. <laughs> um, that's probably something you could do by statute. Uh, rather than a constitutional amendment. Uh, there are a number of other things you can do in terms of the jurisdiction of the federal courts, vis-a-vis uh, -vis state courts or the federal courts. And 
The Constitution says there's got to be a Supreme Court, but it leaves it to Congress as to what the federal judiciary other than the Supreme Court are to look like. Once you have federal judges, they're appointed for life and good behavior unless they're impeached. Uh, so that's one of the reasons that you have to grandfather the current court. But there are a number of things uh, that the Congress could do. It's not about to. The gridlock I talked about before is clearly evident. And it would be a very uh, politically dangerous thing. We talk about third rails in uh, discussion about politics in general. I think this one is close to a third rail. And court packing, as FDR is accused of ha having done, and he did, it, he did it very badly. And Lord Kalman doesn't disagree with that. He said, oh, we've got too many senior judges. They're too old. They're not keeping up with their work. And it just wasn't true. It was true they were old, but they were keeping up with their work. And they very quickly said, oh, no, thank you. We don't need that problem. And what he put, he, it was a court packing scheme that said for everyone over a certain age, we'll appoint another justice up to a certain number. Not a good idea. Just a digression. I, I remember a case in which a federal judge uh, came <clears throat> traveling to Hawaii. And um, it was a, a testament to the fact that you can be too old to serve as a judge. He was there for life. He could not hear the, the testimony. He could not use, you know, hearing aid equipment or anything to do it. So he would require the witnesses to come and sit next to him on the bench. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, frankly, in my opinion, adulated anyway. So, I mean, I, I'm only saying that, uh, you know, it isn't carved in stone. It isn't a holy grail to have judges uh, spend their whole lives because, you know, no, you can but, get pretty old and, and frail these days with modern medicine. Well, the the other side of that, though, is that there are judges, including some who are most honored, I don't know about revered, but most honored, uh, like Justice Holmes, Justice Brandeis, uh, who were quite long in tooth by the time they, they stepped down or died, uh, as some justices have done. Uh, but you're right that uh, we can live much longer. And I think actually that's an argument in favor of extending the mandatory uh, age, the mandatory retirement age in, in our state, uh, which is 70, which certainly strikes me as too young. Uh, and the, I believe there's a statute I don't think uh, proposed a bill in that I don't think is going to pass, but it's been tried before. It would have to be a constitutional amendment here in Hawaii. And it's been tried once open-ended, not having any other age, just saying, let's do away with mandatory retirement. I think that was a mistake. Uh, but you might say 75 or 80 or whatever the no, public wanted. But it would take a constitutional amendment to do that. Yeah, too bad. Speaking of constitutional amendments, um, you know, Common Cause has been advocating for against, against Article 5, the um, Constitutional Convention that some Republicans are working really hard around the country to achieve. And then it strikes me that, you know, as you say, it's hard to get to reform in the current political environment. Uh, it will be harder still if a, a Republican president is elected next time, whoever it is. Um, there'll be a big fight about the judiciary, the next appointment, Supreme Court, what have you. But um, Common Cause, uh, we've, we've had him on the show a couple of times, and Common Cause is very concerned about the Article 5 uh, campaign um, because, um, you know, they feel that in a constitutional amendment where it's a kind of a free-for-all about what you do, it's not so much that, that a Republican-led constitutional convention, uh, you know, would improve the situation in the Supreme Court, rather that it would make it worse. 
Um, are you familiar with this? What do you think about it? I am, and I think again, focusing on on Hawaii is an interesting, uh, per, perhaps counterpoint to what you're suggesting. So we are required every ten years to decide whether or not to have a constitutional convention, uh, and we have not had one since '78. Uh, that's because many people don't want to put in danger things that are already in the Constitution. There are other states where it's very easy to amend the Constitution, and some of them, like California, uh, arguably has become ungovernable because it's very easy uh, through referendum and recall and initiative uh, to say, no, we don't like whatever the Supreme Court of California has done or whatever uh, the legislature is up to. So uh, it's a problem to have easy constitutional amendments. What we have in Hawaii is an interesting uh, variation, I guess you could say, on the theme, which is if there's a proposed constitutional amendment, you have to vote on it. And if a, there's a ballot that is not filled out for yes or no, it counts as a no. And that's our Supreme Court's ruling, and it has been there for a long time. So it really does take a supermajority to pass a constitutional amendment. It's not to say everyone that's passed has been wise, but at least it leads to more thoughtful consideration than what you're suggesting. I don't think, as much as people are advocating for a constitutional convention, I don't think there's any chance of that happening anytime soon, uh, either in the state, frankly, where it's a closer question, or or in the national uh, constitution. Well, it seems unlikely that the court is going to reform itself. Uh, very unlikely. I don't know how that happens. But, you ne- but Jay, you never know. I mean, what happened in 36, 37, when the court called the switch in time that saved nine, the first uh, time that uh, we had a, a real attack on the court. Um, and then what happened was replacement of some justices who resigned or died. And Roosevelt lost the battle, but won the war and got to reshape the court entirely. Uh, as you said, Clarence Thomas uh, is in many ways uh, a leader. Uh, Maybe your particular bugaboo in this discussion is Clarence Thomas. He's a very angry man, uh, and he doesn't look all that healthy. So who knows? Uh, he must have high blood pressure, at least. Uh, so who knows if you know one day he decided to retire from the court? Well, he would probably try to time it for a Republican president and Congress, or rather Senate, uh, but it's not always up to the justice. I'm just using Thomas as an example. So you never know. No, but that's five to four then. <laughs> well, there may be some others. <laughs> and I, by the way, in, in terms of what we've been talking about, two two reasons for optimism. One is Justice Jackson. She is going to be incredibly effective in conference. Uh, she also has a very different view of what's your original intent was, if you want to go that way, about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And I think she's absolutely right, since that's an area that I've been poking at for a long time. Uh, so she and Justice Sotomayor are going to change and the conference discussion, and I think embarrass some of the other justices to at least not say some of the things they've been saying, which have been pretty outrageous. Uh, another reason for optimism is that you can think about this court as really political. But when it came to President Trump, then President Trump, this court and all the other courts did not go his way, including Trump appointed justices. So there is still something to be said for independence of the judiciary. They're not just lockstep with whatever the president wants or whatever the party that appointed them wants. And that's been true over time. Uh, There are many examples of justices who are appointed 
and assume that everyone knows what how they're going to vote. Justice Souter is a good example. Justice Blackman's a good example in fairly recent history. But there are count count not countless because we don't have that many justices, but many many examples over time. Frankfurter uh, thought of as a radical and a liberal, very conservative uh, by the end of his term. So uh, that's another reason for optimism. And finally, uh, maybe one of these days Congress will get out of its gridlock. Maybe one of these days. Uh, the public will realize that federalism is not really about states' rights, uh, which is absurd historically. That's not. They met at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia because the states were fighting each other too much. That's why we have a federal constitution. And then we had the post-Civil War amendments, which actually do matter, tried to do something. And it wasn't states' rights because, you know, the states had just seceded and they didn't particularly like what was going on in the southern states at that time. So it has very little of any historical basis, but it's something people like to just intone. Well, I think the public is what working up, waking up to some of this. Uh, let's hope that they're alive and well uh, as a public and paying attention. You know, you talk about uh, Justice Jackson, um, you know, having better effect, more more persuasive effect in conference. And I, I have hope for the same thing. Um, but, you know, I wonder, sometimes we've seen very sharp dissents uh, from the liberal side of the court recently. And, uh, you know, the press picks up on that, and hopefully the public picks up on a sharp dissent. Um, do you think that sharp dissents, you know, with due regard for the, the public perception, the public understanding, of those sharp dissents have a, have a salutary effect on the majority. Well, well, let me go back to maybe what I was trying to say about federalism uh, in in a different way. Uh, so certainly, if there's a sharp dissent about a statute, and most recently, I guess the famous example is Justice Ginsburg in the Ledbetter case, uh, saying basically to Congress, you know, you could do something about this. The majority just got it wrong in terms of protecting uh, equal pay in, in a gender discrimination case. Uh, and then Congress got it right in Ginsburg's view and my view as well. Uh, it was a very strained interpretation of the statute to start with, and then Congress corrected it. So Congress in most of these cases is statutory, and Congress can do something about it. Uh, now, when there's a constitutional right at stake, it's not so easy, but we have state constitutions and state courts, and they have a lot of running room to say, we want to go beyond what the Supreme Court decided in terms of the rights of people. Uh, you can't go against what the court decided. That's the gun decision. Who knows how far its decision is going to reach, and this is being litigated a lot these days. Mm -hmm. But with abortion, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing some states, because it's left to the states, to say, well, maybe there's not a federal national right, but we in this state think there is a right. And Hawaii led the way, interestingly, about abortion. And it was Governor Burns who was personally against it and said so. He, his conscience, he was a practicing Catholic, but he said, it, we'll leave it to the voters. And the voters wanted abortion in, or had voted for abortion. Nobody wants abortion, but had voted for the abortion right. Uh, and he, he didn't veto uh, the statute. So Hawaii led the way in those days. So there are ways in which the public the Congress, the states can react to what the court does. And I guess there's the straight face optimism. Uh, having said, it's hard to teach constitutional law with a straight face. The rule of law is still important. Um, and uh, I think at base, 
a lot of us, a lot of people in this country, a lot of people around the world know that. And that's why one can be hopeful even about the authoritarian governments around the world and hopeful even about what's going on in this country and our Supreme Court right now. There's so much more to discuss, Avi. I have a stack of questions in my head, but we're out of time. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about this and helping us understand it better. Um, well, thank you for the opportunity, Jay. And I know you're going abroad, so uh, pay attention to what's going on out there and, and be well and, and safe travels. Thank you. Thank you, Avi Stoyfer, formerly dean of the William S. Richardson School of Law and teaching constitutional law, which is his most important interest. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you so much for watching Think Tech Hawaii. If you like what we do, please like us and click the subscribe button on YouTube and the follow button on Vimeo. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and donate to us at thinktechhawaii.com. Mahalo.